I'm Josh. I'm Joe, and this is Video Dropbox, a movie chat podcast where this week we're browsing our video store shelves to choose a special New Year's staff pick. So, Josh, finally, we are tackling the in-crowd. Yep. So why did you choose the in-crowd for our first episode of 2023? So I vividly remember working at a movie theater when this came out and was obsessed with all things late 90s, early 2000s slashers slash thrillers. And I jotted down a few films because there's a handful of these films that feel like adjacent to the in-crowd to me that came out, but not a lot of people went to go see them and or didn't like them, but they were pretty high budget films that were very adjacent to, you know, the runoff of the screams, the I Know What You Did Last Summers that were so Mm. popular in the 90s that everybody loved. And this one, for some reason, like, I don't know what it is about it. The aesthetic is like everything to me. Like, I just love like the music, the cinematography, the acting, the script, the campiness, all of it. Because again, like nobody liked this movie when it came out. And I'm really excited to talk about it. The director does well with it. I mean, it's Mary Lambert, which we'll get into, who is a very famous, not only film director, but also music director, music video director. And so... You can see all that aesthetic in my mind. You know what I mean? Like she has Mm -hmm. sort of like a grittiness to like her earlier films and this even this one, this 2000, that it's shiny and beautiful and polished, but yet it has a little bit of dark edginess and you can see like the horror writs come through, at least I did in certain scenes. And I'm just going to list a few other actual, I don't know, you'd call this a thriller, but, and I do have this categorized in my horror section in my DVD, but um, the actual horror films that came out around this time that are sort of these similar, like films that didn't really do well, that were riding the coattails of these really popular films that I really enjoyed that have that same feel to me were like Urban Legends Final Cut, which came out the same year, Valentine 2001, Cherry Falls was 2000, same as this, Soul Survivors, that movie with Eliza Dushku. Yeah, I was that, this movie made me think of that more than anything, I think. I loved Soul Survivors. And in fact, I think I'd still watch it today and probably still love elements of it. I mean, I wouldn't write hard for it and be like, it's the best movie ever made. But I mean, again, it has this sort of sleek stylistic music video aspect to it that mm-hmm. I really appreciate. I mean, that's kind of part of what I was saying. I mean, other than, like I said, the nostalgia for this film and me loving it and just like gravitating towards it and, and watching this all the time, like I'm obsessed, we'll get into it, but I'm 100% obsessed with Susan Ward who plays the vixen Brittany in this film. (laughs) I think she does like a phenomenal job. And in fact, she's giving, in my opinion, the best Denise Richards from Wild Things performance I've ever seen. Like they have the same kind of tone as Wild Things. It's just that this was, I don't know. It's weird because they don't really establish like an age group for these kids, but I'd like to think that they're in like college and more like a little bit closer to their age, their actual ages than like wild things where we're supposed to believe like Denise Richards and Nev Campbell are like high schoolers. So that's a big reason for me, at least why I wanted to talk about this. Cause I don't think a lot of podcasts that I know of so far have covered this and I wanted to be one of the first and we are not doing it ironically at least I'm not (laughs) Joe maybe Joe may have a lot of negative things to say we haven't gotten into it yet but this is a film I will say I will go hard for because watching it again I was like oh man the nostalgia is like flooding over me in fact 
being a young closeted queer boy, all I ever wanted to do is have a little jar of lip gloss that I put on with my ring finger. So anyway, with that said, I had kind of mentioned off the top that the director is the infamous Mary Lambert. And so, Joe, do you want to get into a conversation about her and or some of our favorite female directors? Yeah. For Mary Lambert specifically, I knew her from Pet Cemetery. I didn't realize, I'm sure you knew this, uh, it was the Madonna music videos that really made her big. Because what did she direct? It was... Oh, the big one, the big controversial one, it was like a prayer, which was having the black yeah. Jesus and the burning crosses. But she did Material Girl, which is huge, you know, like big movie-esque production because it's like the Marilyn Monroe, you know, pink dress and movie studio performance. Did she do Like a Virgin too? I believe so. So I guess, I don't know, it makes me wonder why she, at this point in in her career with the in-crowd... Because after this, there are things like Urban Legends Bloody Mary. She actually has a Netflix rom-com right now, Castle for Christmas with Brooke Shields and Carrie Elwes. It's not the career path I would have expected from her. I'm surprised that she's not a bigger name, I guess. That like when like in terms of movies, you hear about Pet Cemetery, and that's about the start and stop. Um, yeah. And there's a lot in between. And in fact, there was one that I really wanted to watch, but I it was hard to track down and I couldn't find it streaming. I'm sure if I really dug deep into it, I could have. But there was a film that came out right before The Incrowd in 99 called Clubland. It's American musical film. It was starring Lori Petty, you know, Tank Girl fame and oh, yeah. League of Their Own, all of that. I just needed to know more about it. In fact, like, Again, I didn't have the time or the resources to track it down, but I 100% am going to look into it after, you know, we're done recording this. This is a movie I have such a vivid memory of seeing the cover at like a Hollywood video, and I can't imagine that I actually watched the movie. I have no memory of that, but that cover it's just in itself, yeah. Popping out at you? Yeah, yeah I mean, like it, it looks... It's, it's so late 90s, because that also feel like 200 cigarettes must have been around the same time, too, and like all those... Uh, and go... Uh, yeah, all those movies just have that same vibe. Just looking at the cover, yeah. Full disclosure, Joe knows. Like, I did try to reach out to Mary Lambert via Twitter <laughs> slash Instagram. She didn't reply because, go figure. Like, why would she give the small podcast in a sea of thousands of podcasts the time of day to talk to us? But I would just love to talk to her to get sort of a perspective of her career and kind of what led her to where she is now. Like if she primarily stepped away to focus on family or other creative projects, because she's done a lot of TV too. Yeah, she directed an episode of the Step Up series. Yeah, which is still currently on. I think it was yeah. season two, or is it one or two? Yep, season two, episode two, Splits. Yeah, I mean, she's got a lucrative career. I would love to just hear from her what her journey what has been from the beginning to where she is now. I mean, I, I just want to just say this is a 100% affection towards Mary Lambert and like me saying that I just really respect and love her as a creator because I think she's done a lot of really quality things. But on that topic, we kind of gave each other a little bit of homework just to keep talking about the genius of other female creators. And I was wondering, Joe, do you have five 
we'll limit to five because there are a lot, I'm sure, mm -hmm. when you were re researching as well. So yeah. I apologize if we're not including some of the greatest female directors of all time, but what are your top five? Well, I thought it was interesting that we're touching on this now because not only, well, in our uh, recent Gross Point Blank episode, doing research for this question, I realized that there was a lot, the Secret Garden in the 90s, the 90s Little Women movie, both of those were directed by women. And then Wayne's World and League of Their Own, we talked about a lot. Uh, and then also the sight and sound, every decade they put out the greatest movies of all time list. Uh, that was just topped for the first time by a woman, uh, Jeanne Daman uh, from Chantal Ackerman. But um, my five... I want more for movies, I guess, but it, it lines up pretty okay. well with directors. So top of the mountain for me, Catherine Bigelow. I love just about everything that she's done, but particularly Strange Days. That's my number one. Uh, then there's Claire Denis from France. She did Beau Tuval, which also coincidentally ended up in the 10 greatest movies on that sight and sound list. Uh, again, I like a lot of her work too, but that's the top for me. Maybe my favorite movie ending of all time. I don't know. Then... Sofia Coppola's Lost in Translation. That's a film that for a while was in my 10 favorites. I feel now, as I've gotten older, it doesn't resonate as much. The whole, like, I'm sad and 20 and don't know my, <laughs> my directions. Like, yeah, whatever. But it's still a gorgeous movie. Then we've talked about it a lot recently. Jodie Foster directing Home for the Holidays. Mm -hmm. And then got to go with the rom-com legend Nora Ephron. But... I will choose one of her lesser-known films, Michael, the John Travolta oh. Angel movie, which I don't think people tend to like very much, but I have a very soft spot for it. I'm going to try not to talk this whole entire time. So I do have... I'll, I'll do the brief run-through my list. So I, I did five directors and five films because there is oh. a little bit of a variation between the two. However, mm -hmm. I wrote a bunch of different films by different directors that I really appreciate because there's so many, Joe. I mean, yeah. there's so many great people that you just don't even think about. In fact, when you just said The Secret Garden right now, like that's one of my favorite movies and I didn't even realize it was directed by a woman. And even when you, I'm going to call bullshit on like Google searches because even when you type in, which I'm sure you've done this too, you type in, you know, greatest female directors of all time or mm -hmm. female directors even. The list, there's so many people that they're still excluding. I mean, unless you go to the Wikipedia page, which is like insane because then it like legitimately lists like every single woman in yeah. alphabetical order and you're <laughs> like i don't know half of these people but if you named like titles of films i would yeah. know yeah and so i'll just run through so my five directors that i wrote was karen kusama she did jennifer's body the invitation girl fight and so my number two on the director list was mary lambert which we just covered i do really really like her aesthetic and that's where I think my list has evolved with a lot of these directors. I feel like you'll see they have a little bit of that 90s gritty kind of feel. And I think that's why I picked these five particular directors. So three was Amy Heckerling, who's clueless fame. Oh, right. Fast Times at Ridgemont High, Look Who's Talking. Catherine Hardwick, I feel like is another one that people don't talk enough about. I really love her aesthetic. She's kind of a love it or hate it director, but she did the movie 13, Twilight. Oh, I that's right. I think she did the uh, Lords of Dogtown, I think. Oh, like, right. That was yeah, like yeah. kind of California vibe skater kind of aesthetic. And then my fifth was also Sofia Coppola because... I mean, again, out of a list of all these female directors that I wrote down that I appreciate and have these movies that I love, I picked the ones that I've seen the most of their films and enjoyed them consistently. And Sofia Coppola exactly is 
I remember when Marie Antoinette came out and I was like, this movie is fucking awesome. Like it was unlike anything I'd ever seen because she, again, like did a great job of mixing sort of this genres, you know, like Marie Antoinette wearing Chuck Taylors, like running down a, t- you know what I mean? Like, it's just, it's like the kookiest, craziest stuff, but like the, her aesthetic is so beautiful, like the Virgin Suicides. So, and then I'll, I'll do the films quick. Cause I, I don't want to, again, take up too much time, but I agree with you, Joe. Like, even though she's not on my list home for the holidays, I did include the in crowd because I do <laughs> have a soft spot and we're talking about it. Um, Valley Girl, Martha Coolidge, she directed Valley Girl, the original Valley Girl is one of my faves. And a shout out callback to hottie hottie Nick Cage. I do really like the movie 13. And then um, Booksmart, because I think Olivia Wilde, I didn't include her on my list because she's only really done two films. This and Don't Worry Darling. But I love that film because it's unlike some anything I've watched before. And it's contemporary. And I'm just really excited about what she's doing because she's another one that I feel like she's... She's trying to do something new and giving the breath of fresh air that we need. But honorable mentions, um, Penny Marshall, A League of Their Own, uh, Nia DaCosta, who did the recent Candyman. There's Mary Haran, who did American Psycho. Amy Fletcher, I can't believe you didn't mention this one, Joe. She did the original Step Up. Oh, really? The first Step Up, even though it's probably your least favorite of the Step Up. Films. I didn't realize that that had a female director. Oh, I'm sorry. It's Anne. Did I say Amy? It's Anne Fletcher. Mm. She also did The Guilt Trip, um, which I do really appreciate that with Barbara Streisand and Seth Rogen. And then I'm counting this, even though she's a duo. Deborah Kaplan, Can't Hardly Wait, and Josie and the Pussycat with Harry Elfant. And they co-directed and wrote those films. Oh, yeah. Then, man, yeah. I completely forgot about her. Maybe I wasn't including that because it's a duo. But yeah, I mean, both of those movies definitely make my short list. And since talking about duos too, I was just thinking of this today. Uh, Anna Bowden, who has done a few movies with Ryan Fleck, but uh, Half Nelson, I'm a big fan of. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, the lists could go on and on, but I do want to do one more shout out. I believe another big one, not that it's like the best movie ever made, but Amy Holden Jones, this is another iconic director who did the original Slumber Party Massacre. And the only reason I give her a shout out for that is because I, I believe at the time that was a big fucking deal for like one of the first female directors to do like a all-female slasher film mm-hmm. that had like a commentary on the film. Yeah. But yeah, great list, Joe. Between the two of us, we're coming up with all kinds of things. Yeah, and with the in crowd making your top five, you're putting it on a pedestal. So we'll have to see how it <laughs> how it we're going to be like you piece of shit. You made me watch this movie. <laughs> but I guess should we get into it then? Let's do it. The in crowd. We can go in here and get as crazy as we want. They bring new meaning to rich. You would kill in that dress. Sexy. I don't know her. She's not your friend. And drop dead gorgeous. I brought you in. I can easily throw you out. All right, so In Crowd's coming out in 2000. It opens on July 21st. Uh, It opens at number 12, so right off the bat, it's not doing great. Which, if I remember correctly, I don't know about Valentine, but I know Soul Survivors did pretty poor. So I feel this might have been the time when the slasher or more like those psychological thriller-style movies were on the downswing after the big boom of Scream, and I know what he did last summer. The biggest movies opening that weekend, What Lies Beneath was number one. Uh, And then you also had Pokemon the movie. That's where I was at the time. Mm. Oh, and In Crowd 
it cost $24 million to make, but it only made $5.2 million back at the box office. Probably didn't recoup its budget off of video releases, so I'm guessing this was a loss. So you probably know more about the cast than I do, but I'll list what I do know. Lori Hearing, she's the main character, Adrian. Uh, she has a small part in Mulholland Drive. She's barely in it. It's when, it's Justin Thoreau when he goes to his house and his wife is cheating on him. She plays his wife. Oh, okay. So she's in like two scenes, maybe. Susan Ward, uh, Woo, as, MVP. You, as you said, <laughs> as Brittany. Uh, I didn't really know her from much, but I thought it was interesting that she's also in Wild Things too. Yeah, I, I watched it specifically just because of that. I was like, ooh, this is going to be fucking great. <laughs> just because of her being Denise Richards in this film and not great. Oh, That's no. all I have to say. I mean, I like her, but... I knew the male cast members more. Matthew Settle, mostly from Gossip Girl, but he was also Ben's son, and I still know what he did last <laughs> summer. Uh, uh, and then also our buddy Nathan Bexton from Go, who uh, was one of my favorite things of this movie. I don't know, were there other people that you recognized? Yes, so... I guess well, we could get into it during the summary, too, but... Yeah, they're minor characters, but the one big one for me was Ethan Erickson as Tom. He played the sexy guy that, unfortunately, sexually assaults her. I just remember him from Buffy. That's where a oh. lot of these references come. He was... I don't think he was a recurring character, but he had an arc in that. He was also in the movie Jawbreaker with Rose mm. McGowan. He plays kind of the asshole where she tells him that she's in for a little kink tonight and wants him to suck on her big stick. Oh, God, it's... So good. But yes, he's super hot. And apparently when I listened to the commentary on this, they said he was nothing but a gentleman in this film. Uh, so for crew, I thought this was pretty endearing. Her composer, Jeff Rona, uh, seems to follow Mary Lambert around because he also did the score for Urban Legends, Buddy Mary and Castle for Christmas. Uh, the writers, Mark Gibson and Philip Halprin, the only other notable movie it looked like they did was Snow Dogs. Uh, and the cinematographer, Tom Presley Jr., uh, the most notable one, Tales from the Crypt, Bordello of Blood, one of your favorites, Woo, Josh. I Ooh. know. Another one that I would say is probably, you could probably watch these paired together and people would be like, fuck you. And then I guess, I mean, I feel that we've hinted at it of what the general consensus of this movie was at the time, but this was not a film for Leonard Maltin, it seems. Oh, boy. Uh, he gives it his lowest rating, a bomb, but he says subpar cross between slasher pick and Aaron Spelling sludge about a troubled girl fresh out of the loony bin who takes a summer job at an exclusive country club. There she falls in with a homicidal bisexual young woman and her 90210 hottie friends. The pinup cast pouts, glares, and shows off its tan lines with minimal conviction. Any other um, interesting tidbits you found? That's about all I had, but you had the the commentary, so I'm sure you'll have more to add as well as time goes on with the summary. The commentary, unfortunately, did not have Mary Lambert. It was just the leads, which I have to say, I had a blast, actually. I thought it was going to be super boring and be like, oh, they're talking very technical and serious. You would not guess that these two women are, they're the furthest from these two characters that you would ever guess. Like, Susan Ward has a very thick Southern accent, and she's very bubbly and, like, giggly and like, oh, my Lord, oh, my God. Like, oh, here I go again. Like, she's, I'm not even I'm not even exaggerating. Like, I mean, that's a terrible impression, so I apologize to everyone out there. But I'm just saying, like, she was so endearing and, and so lovely that I was like, okay, now I love this woman even more. And like, meanwhile, like Lori, my gripe with her is, well, one, 
at the time when they were recording this, which was early 2000s, they kind of seemed like they hadn't seen the film in a while. And so they were like recording it and like commenting on things that like they forgot about, like, oh my God, what am I doing here? Oh my God. Oh, what's with my eyebrows? Stuff like that. But Lori, so they were like good friends and they were, they were mentioning like, oh, we've spent too much time together. We live together for a short time and we're good friends in LA and all of that. What I was getting a little irritated with is much like the Nev Campbell, Denise Richards, I don't remember who the news reporter was, where Nev Campbell basically was like, yeah, I don't believe in like full frontal nudity or anything, while poor Denise Richards was like bearing it all out there. Like same with Laurie and this Susan Ward. Like, I mean, Susan Ward is topless a lot in this film. And Laurie's like, oh, mom and dad, I apologize. Don't watch this part. And it's like them dancing at the club, grinding on a guy. I'm like, come on. Are you kidding me? Like, if I was Susan Ward, I'd be like, fuck you. Like, she was embarrassed at that scene when she's like changing in the locker room and she's in her bra and somewhat see-through. It's like, girl, please. Like, I just, no, no, no. I mean, I respect her modesty and I appreciate both of them as actresses. But again, given all that Susan Ward went through and did, I'm just like, mm-mm, I wouldn't be saying shit. That'd be like, okay, that's not as bad as what you had to endure. So are we ready? Yeah. Everybody ready? In for the long haul. This might be a long episode, everyone. Just too much good stuff. For the epic that is the in crowd. All right. So our film opens and it gave me a little bit of the malignant vibes. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about, but you know, there was that weird like industrial kind of rock 90s aesthetic for malignant a little bit yeah that's really what i got and like from day one when i saw this film i always thought that like this opening doesn't really match the rest of the film because it's very stylistic with this intense music playing and there's like this dirty droplets dropping into a bucket and just sitting in this warehouse and you're like what's going on but we meet our protagonist adrian played by laurie hewing sitting in the middle of a huge room that looks to me like an industrial warehouse not a hospital and uh, panel, <laughs> she's sitting in the middle of this room in front of a panel of six doctors, which I had to laugh at. I'm like, it takes six people to evaluate this one woman. <laughs> but uh, while they're sitting in front of her and fill out a psychological evaluations on this woman. So we quickly learn that she's a patient in an institution and she's being evaluated for her release. And little fun fact I'll just point out is apparently all the hospital scenes and the basement scene where she's in the elevator, that was all shot at an actual institution on a Navy base. It was like an abandoned institution. So method, (laughs) because Susan Ward was talking about how she was terrified of being in there because she thought it was really, really creepy. And so it makes sense. Like none of that's a set. It's an actual place. So after, you know, we get this American Idol style, uh, six doctors evaluating Adrian, we meet Dr. Henry Thompson, who walks the halls of the facility to justify Adrian's release. And he mentions that Adrian has an obsessive personality and that if she messes up again, she'll be sent back to her padded cell. And then we cut to Adrian gathering her things to leave the institution and in an homage in my opinion, to Girl Interrupted, because it feels very Girl Interrupted in this scene. Well, and it's funny because both actresses joke, they're like, oh, you can tell the quote-unquote crazy people because they don't have their hair brushed, but then everybody else is, that's like all, that's different. Like, they still look great, but their hair just is a mess. So we meet Adrian's roommate who tries stealing this postcard with the portrait of Christina's World by Andrew Wyeth, I believe is how you say it. It's a very famous 
illustration. I don't know if you were familiar with it. Oh, I was not. With the woman in the like tall grass reaching for the house. And Adrian becomes very aggressive all of a sudden, rips it out of her hand. And then the patient tells her she'll be back once everyone sees how crazy you are. Just emphasize that. So um, Dr. Thompson meets up with Adrian. He drives her to the country club. It's revealed that he got her a job as part of her release. And he goes over a few ground rules. Basically, like, she can't leave the county, she shouldn't drink, etc., which she quickly breaks <laughs> eventually, but before she's introduced to her snooty boss. And then Dr. Thompson asks her boss in private to call him first if anything out of the ordinary happens on his trusty, handy-dandy pager. Uh, Adrian's shown the ropes around the club by co-worker Joanne, who apparently is a very experienced burlesque performer in real life. Oh. And they see a group of loud guests sailing, a jet skiing, and this is where we sort of get that Leonard Malton like cringe factor. I'm sure he's like, oh, I'm already hating this movie because it's all the beautiful people doing fun beachy things. The youths. Yeah, these <laughs> damn kids being loud and obnoxious. Um, and Adrian is then given the rundown of who's who amongst all these beautiful people. And among them, we meet brunette ringleader Brittany Foster, played by Queen Susan Ward. And we get a quick shot of Brittany noticing Adrian having this brief look of panic on her face, but also intrigue. And you're kind of wondering, what's that about? So Adrian laments that maybe that will be her in another life, to which Joanne sarcastically replies, it's not a life, it's a J. Crew ad. And I had to put that quote because I specifically remember hearing that in one of the trailers. So Adrian and Joanne finish up on the beach and they pass by our lovable drunk Bobby, a.k.a. Nathan Bexton. You know what? From the very young age, like I never quite understood what it was about him that I was always like intrigued by. And now as a full-grown homosexual male, yes, I have. Well, 100% had a crush on Bobby. There's just something really like innocently cute about Nathan Bexton. And in fact, the girls pointed it out in the later scenes, way towards the end of the movie, when he's having that conversation with Adrian in the psych ward. He has this quiver to his lip when he talks. That's really interesting that I've never seen it before. And you you just have to pay close attention, but he can like talk very intensely and have this sort of like, that's the best way I can describe it is it's like sort of this quiver of his bottom lip. And I'm like, oh man, like now I, I have <laughs> even harder of a crush on him. Like, he's just so fantastic. I'd say he has a very naive charm to the characters he plays, at least in this and uh, Go. Yeah. So, um, yeah, the girls pass by. I call him lovable drunk because I swear every time we see him, he's, like, passed out or always drinking. But he's just, like, he's, like, sleep on this beach chair with a martini in his hand, and he sits up long enough to catch a glimpse of Adrian pass by before passing back out in his chair, kind of shrugging it off, like, huh. So Adrian unpacks. She starts taping her postcard of Christina's world back together, and she's startled when creepy coworker Wayne enters her room, and the two introduce themselves to one another. And that's really all I have of Wayne. Like, he'll come back to play later, but, like, he kind of, like, weaves in and out of the film unnecessarily. Yeah, I don't know how you a, feel. It's kind of a red herring that doesn't even Chaos start anyway. or yeah. matter. Yeah. yeah. And, in fact... They did say that whoever this actor is, they said he was a complete method actor and he like wouldn't talk to anyone and was super into his <laughs> character. And they oh. said that the dirt on his face is actual dirt because he would like go away and like roll in the dirt and like dishevel himself and then like get into character and then come to set. Oh, goodness. So, yeah, it's like dedication for no reason. You know what yeah, I mean? That's like, like, like you said, if there was a bigger role or a payoff, like a reveal, like maybe he's faking it, then I could see it. But anyway, so the next day, Adrian's tidying up our cabanas on the beach. 
our usual suspects, all of the in crowd are all mm-hmm. there. Greg and Andy, they're the troublemakers of the bunch. They plant a brown paper bag in one of the closed beach umbrellas and desperately wait for Adrian to open it because they're all into hazing the new people, the new staff. And while they do, we got blonde bombshell Sheila who consults with Bobby for help on her crossword puzzle. And she's basically asking, like, what's the Greek goddess of the hunt? I think is what the name yeah. is. Yeah. And so Adrian approaches as they're all talking and she opens the umbrella and when she does an orange snake drops to the sand and the crew watches and laughs. And this is a weird prank, right? Oh like, yeah, it's really fucked up. At first I'm like, did they like shit in a bag and like put it up for her to find? But it's like, yeah. no, we put a bag with a snake in an umbrella. Ha <laughs> ha like, A live what? snake. Yeah, like it, it would be one thing if it was like, you know, the old like, oh, it's a fake rat or a bat yeah. or something. But no, it's like a live snake. It just gets even more awkward because instead of her freaking out, she just like immediately picks it up and she like very intensely like looks up as the snake's like wrapping around her wrist and she's very serious and she's like Diana goddess of the hunter so whatever the answer is like she's just she like answers and then she walks away with the snake practically wrapped around her wrist so we cut to the tennis courts we meet this tennis instructor Matt Curtis played by Stone Cold Fox Matthew Settle aka Will Ben's son um, and he hits a few balls so the ball launcher jams and he tries prying it with a screwdriver but is interrupted by Adrian as she's standing over him and he looks up at her and he says Sandra? Before the screwdriver violently shoots out of the machine and slams into the wall but what I think is hilarious is like nobody seems too concerned about that like screwdriver just flying and hitting the wall and like slamming into it it was hard enough for it to just stick straight out so never mind that as Adrian introduces herself, and as she does, then Brittany arrives fashionably late because she's got the greatest wardrobe and hairstyles in this. I mean, chef's kiss. And then that night, we see Adrian and Joanne, their cater waitering glasses of champagne, which Lori Hewing said she full-on dropped the first take. And our in-crowd brags about their inheritance. They're all acting like complete assholes, mainly just Greg and Andy. I mean, the girls are fine. We meet Tom. Ooh, this is a, that's that Stone Cold Fox I was talking about, played by Ethan Erickson, who is Percy from Buffy and Dane from Jawbreaker. They ask him where he's been. He mentions that he was on vacation, which Morgan, that's the blonde girl's name from Go. She replies, I thought you were in rehab, to which he shamefully confesses is true. And we have asshole Greg, who tells him that he was more fun when he was on Coke and tells everyone that he's ready to get drunk. So outside the club, a very drunk Bobby, we get the scene of him approaching Kelly, who we also meet, sitting on her sailboat. And he's got two bottles of champagne and he does this kind of cute thing with her, like telling her to drink the bottle with him. And he reminisces about how the two spent some time together trapped on her boat on a sandbar. And he tries to kiss her, but she stands completely still, shutting him down, which is so awkward. He tells her that, yeah, the sandbar was a nice memory, to which she coldly replies, that was last summer. So he quickly gets the hint and does his best Charlie Brown as he walks away with a single bottle of champagne. So you you kind of feel for Bobby because he's just like, he's doing his best. He's trying to have a good time, but nobody wants anything to do with him. He's kind of the clown of the group, really. But back in the club, Brittany makes her grand entrance. And Adrian and Brittany notice one another as Brittany greets Dr. Thompson. Uh, Adrian's boss tells her that the ice machine's broken, so he asks her to take a bus box and retrieve more ice by the pool. So we get a quick glimpse of Brittany looking at this exchange before we cut to the poolside machine. And it's there, when Adrian's shoveling ice, that there's a quick shot of these feet slipping out of shoes, placing them alongside the pool. That 
Adrian then hears a splash and just is like, oh, that was weird. And when she gets closer, finds Brittany just unconscious floating in the middle of the pool. It's a very faint splash too, Joe. So it's very interesting. But anyway, Adrienne, the good girl she is, she jumps in and pulls Brittany out and she starts performing CBR on her. And while she's listening to her heart, we get this great shot of Brittany briefly opening up her eyes and forming a little devilish smile before going limp again. And these are those Denise Richards moments that I'm like, yes, yes. Like, this is what I love. Go, Susan Ward. Uh, And then Brittany, you know, fakes coming to. The girls retreat to Adrian's room where this is where we get our first topless Brittany scene. She's just standing there topless. I mean, to be fair, like her back is to the camera. And I do love that she's like wearing jeans because I'm like, would she be wearing jeans? However, I suppose that's all Adrian probably has in her room, right? She's not like, here's my evening gown you can put on for tonight. I just love that Brittany's just casually standing there like topless with a pair of jeans on just staring at her wall looking at the christina's world postcard but as she flips it over we quickly learn like britney's not a dummy like she sees that address on there she's like huh interesting of the institution and so adrian gives her a top the two discuss the you know iconic image christina's world and then britney mentions that well in her words she's saying it's as if the girl in the image left something behind something she knows she can never go back for and then that's when adrian's boss storms in and begins berating her and britney doing her best denise richards from wild things interrupts and asks if there's a problem and this is very like matt Dillon after the car wash scene where she's like wearing that white caesar shirt and like tying it up as she's like is there a problem it's so good uh and he basically leaves with his tail between his legs uh so later our resident assholes greg and andy again play probably the worst prank on her when she's like in the basement of this fucking rickety old basement she gets in an elevator and greg and andy turn the power off of a breaker box and then as they're passing by matt they psychotically laugh and say i hope she has enough oxygen like what an- dick thing to say like oh haha she might die in there but eh, not my problem it's just the help dear god so the power mysterious uh, miraculously comes on and adrian's greeted by matt who it tells her it was all a prank and they have a quick exchange while riding the elevator and uh britney greets them when the doors open and she overtly flirts with matt in front of adrian to which after he leaves adrian says someone has a thing for the tennis pro and i love this britney confidently looks at him and she says it's not just a thing oh god the delivery i wish i could do it like they do but uh Brittany, after that, invites Adrian to her beach party and begs her to come and mentions that she has a real problem with dealing with rejection, which we're planting a little seed early Uh-oh. on. Uh, so Adrian accepts before a disgruntled Kelly appears. <laughs> I just love this. Whenever we see Kelly from here on out, she's just like mean mugging with her arms crossed, like, get away from my friend, you bitch. But they're talking and, Br- and basically Kelly's just like, Brittany, I'm waiting. Like, just ridiculous. Oh, God, it's so good, Joe. I'm sorry. I'm not doing it justice, but it's just the cat and the camp is spot on and joanne notices adrian at the same time interacting with Brittany and warns her to be careful around her to which a confident adrian replies thanks for the warning but girls like Brittany howard i can handle oh god <laughs> it's like oh it's so it's so genius later that night adrian walks to the beach is almost run over by kelly who angrily passes her on her moped and Adrian arrives at the party, which is in full swing. We get a few shots of a blazing bonfire. We get partygoers playing beach chicken and losing their tops, which apparently this is one of the cuts because apparently this film was rated R and got cut down to be PG-13 rating, which oh. I do feel probably didn't hurt it too much. But still, 
I wish this would have been an R rating because it does feel like a PG-13 Wild Things. Yeah. But, you know, what I don't care too much about is scenes like this. Like, they cut down because the topless scene, like, would have been full on. Like, I don't think you see anything. Oh, they did say there was another scene where later, as the night progresses, people full on go skinny dipping and run full fledged into the water, like totally naked. And they cut all that out of the film, too. But there's massive spread of food and booze. We get martini clad Bobby introducing himself to Adrian. And this is another iconic line from the trailer and the TV spots, which is welcome to the lifestyles of the rich and the tasteless. And he shows her to the bar where Adrian uncomfortably runs into Joanne, who's working behind the bar. And the two girls remain silent as Brittany approaches them and offers Adrian a drink, which this is no-no number one. She's not supposed to be drinking, but there she goes. She's drinking that drink. And Sheila appears and asks for the 411. And this is another awkward scene, but I always loved it, where she's like, yo, Britt, what's the 411 on Baywatch, boy? As Brittany tells her, it's Jack Simmers, a duke? Okay, for some reason, Joe, I was convinced for years that this was the Tom character who was coming out of the water at night in his Speedo taking a midnight swim. But then when I watched it again for like, what, the 40th time, I finally realized, no, no, this is like a just a total different guy that has no part, which I'm wondering if for some reason they cut more of his role or what. Because it, it makes zero sense that we just get this random super hot guy coming out of the water, like ripped. And they're like, ooh, there's the Duke. And then it's like, that's that. So yeah, he's slowly walking out of the water and we get this great shot of all three girls looking on lustfully. So good on them. Good on Mary Lambert for subverting to the female gaze in this film. But uh, there's a few shots of the party winding down as Adrian and our core group, who appear to be pretty wasted at this point, sit around a fire and explain the rules of Never Have I Ever to Adrian. And it's revealed that Sheila slept with her mother's boyfriend Andy cheated on Morgan with an au pair, and a shirtless Tom appears, catches Adrian's attention, and Kelly says, I never drink with the help. Totally killing the vibe. Adrian leaves and is consoled by Brittany, who tells her that sometimes she throws these parties just to sneak away like her sister did. So we get kind of like this introduction that she's got a sister. And then we learn that her sister Sandra hated this town and the club and ran off. So this is where that iconic line comes in. The girls are interrupted by Tom who retrieves a Frisbee and he's kind of like drips water on them as he like runs by and he apologizes to Adrian for getting her all wet. So, (laughs) because he's shirtless and super sexy and the girls just look at each other and then they just kind of giggle and laugh. I just, I love it. Uh, The next day, Adrian runs into Dr. Thompson and excuses herself as Brittany approaches and the girls visit a salon and have an interaction with probably the worst gay stereotype i've seen in a film in a very very long time i mean it is so oh it's so over the top and terrible actually i mean i i'm okay if you're gonna commit to a a gay stereotype like commit but this is very like don't try to out bitch me honey like i'm pretty sure that's like what he says he's like ooh, you're just as sweet as a piece of hot candy on a hot summer night like i don't know it's just ridiculous So this is probably my least favorite moment, not because I find it offensive. I just find the performance offensive. So anyway, uh, yeah, they're they're at some spa or salon just chatting and flipping through this magazine and Adrian sees the stress, which Brittany, again, another quote for the trailer says, Adrian, you would kill in that dress, which is great. You know, another uh, wordplay moment. 
And then later the girls join Tom and Kelly on the golf course where we get a quick montage of them playing a few holes and we get a quick shot. This Here's our shot of red herring Wayne again, driving by on a golf <laughs> cart, just looking really creepy, staring at them as Adrian and Tom are flirting. Brittany watches them seductively applying her lip gloss with her one oh. ring finger. Cause as you watch the film, you'll see she always puts the lip gloss on with the one finger and it all comes to a head when Kelly hits a ball into the surrounding woods. And a startled Kelly shares a look with Brittany before telling Tom and Adrian that she can't find the ball. And to make matters worse, Adrian insists on retrieving it, but Brittany demands she just take the drop. Mm. So something's fishy. Something's up. Yeah. What were your thoughts up to this point? Were you like, where is this going? Like we get like she was getting out of the institution and we're meeting all these beautiful people. But at this point, up until now, were you like, what is this film about? Like, is it just like all these beautiful people doing fun, stupid, rich things or? Uh, I mean, not knowing what this movie was going to be about. Like, I didn't read a plot synopsis or anything for it. It was really the instant that Brittany mentioned that her sister hated town and then left. and was like, oh, her sister's dead. Someone killed her. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, so I guess this is a mystery of like who did it. So... Okay, so you knew quickly, because I, I just, I like to get like, an, you know, someone else's perspective, because I've seen this a million times, and I was just, it's mm-hmm. been so long, like I said, since I saw it for the first time, that I don't remember my feelings of like, did I know right off the bat, like, oh, something's up, or was I like, okay, she has a sister. I mean, it was a, an alarm early on when, was it Tom, who was the tennis? Oh, Matt. Yeah. Or Matt, uh, when Matt first sees Adrian is like Sandra. I'm like, oh, that name means something. And then so when the name comes back up, it's like, oh, this is what it's about. Okay. Yeah. And I don't think I know, mentioned it off the top, but I'm pretty sure we even get a, a line with Bobby and Brittany interacting where he's like, you know, the first time I saw her, I thought she looked just like Sandra. Don't, yeah. Isn't she a dead ringer? So yeah, it keeps coming up. I guess maybe I thought more that this was going to be a situation like I know what you did last summer where Sandra died and they all were sort of in on it or something. So sure. They're all hiding something. I was just curious. So keep that in your back pocket, listeners, because we're heading that direction. So after the girls are done playing golf, they're in the changing room and Brittany encourages Adrian to hook up with Tom. She also mentions that she knows her secret about the institution. And she basically Mm. reminds Adrian, like most of the club goers are in regular therapy or rehab. (laughs) So it's basically the same thing. And this is why Brittany Foster kicks ass because she is non-discriminatory in this situation. And I don't think she's like an outright bitch in any of these scenes. She's like privileged, but nothing up to this point have I seen where she's like outright rude to anyone other than maybe Bobby. There was one scene that I didn't appreciate where she's like, your only purpose in life is to make me a drink or something bitchy like that. But like, we'll get into it at the end. We'll talk about whether we think Brittany is a good or a bad person. So it's debatable, but we'll talk about it. Okay. So uh, yeah, later we cut to Adrian back at her place. She's taking a shower. She hears a noise. We get this traditional, like, let's go investigate my towel. Um, and she sees wet footsteps leading into her bedroom. She finds a gift, a mysterious gift on her bed with a note from Brittany asking her to meet her at her house later. And inside is the dress that Adrian was eyeing in a magazine at the salon earlier. The one that she would kill in. Oh. Uh, so Adrian arrives at Brittany's mansion all dolled up for the party because she's, of course, having people over again. And she invites herself in 
I mean, she doesn't try very hard. She just knocks and then opens the door and is like, hello. <laughs> and if, if I worked there and I had just met this really rich girl, I would not have the balls to just like go into her house and be like, hey, anyone here? Like, I'd just be <laughs> like, oh, shit, I guess I'm going to go home. Like, no one's here. So she's marveling at the opulence of the house. She hears a noise upstairs and she's like, that's the balls again. She goes upstairs. It's like she doesn't even just stay downstairs. Like she's like, oh, is it someone up there? Hello? Hello? I'm here. Like, no, stay down there. You're going to make more trouble. But um, clearly she feels comfortable. So she finds Sand- Sandra's bedroom, which is stacked with trophies. And this is one of my favorite things of the film is from here on out, Brittany is always there. She is just whenever you turn around, you're like, oh, fuck. Oh, my God. How did she get here? Like, she's just, she's that good. She's just, she is like a killer, but not intentionally. She's just like, yeah, I heard you, bitch. So um, she creeps up behind her and tells her that she knew she'd kill in that dress before escorting her to the finished basement where our other in-crowders are partying. Brittany tells Bobby to make Adrian a drink. And this is that line I was telling you about earlier where it's just really bitchy. She's like, your only purpose in life is to make me a drink. While that's going on, Andy flips his shit over a game of pool and Bobby explains to Adrian that he was a little short on his money this week. So he bet Morgan, his girlfriend, as his bounty. I don't know. And there's a quick shot of Greg. (laughs) So creepy. Greg lying down on the pool table, gloating as Morgan closes the door behind her. It's like, kind of, not kind of, it's really fucked up, actually. And the fact that the girlfriend goes through with it, but whatever. I mean, this is what money does to you, I guess. Brittany asks Adrian to go up to her room and retrieve some CDs. This definitely dates this movie. We cut to a hiccuping Adrian up in the bedroom. So this is the thing I don't love about this too, is it feels too on the nose. Like, oh, she's drunk. Like she's hiccuping, Mm. you know, like that over the top. But to be fair, before it gets creepy, I do think the scene with Tom is very charming when he like, you know, seductively rids her of her hiccups. He's like, okay, stand up and bend over. And he's like very gentlemanly, you know, like drink the water and she stands up and she, and then they kiss and it's very gentle. And they lay on that weird shaped chair, which they said was made specifically for this film. Oh. And so as they're kissing, I love this. We get this great shot of Brittany all of a sudden, just again, she's just there. Like she's just watching them through the window out on like the terrace and Tom's spots Brittany and then immediately becomes increasingly aggressive with Adrian to the point where she fights him off, pushes him. He knocks his head on this like pillar on the side and she runs off and Brittany enters the room glaring at him with this like really creepy look on her face. So you're starting to get the sense like something's up. Mm. So the next morning, Brittany approaches Adrian while she's working. She asks what went down with Tom the night before, and she tells her about the assault and says she didn't mention it to anyone because no one would believe her, which, true. I mean, she's the help and they're rich, so who would believe her, right? But um, Brittany tells her that she would have believed her if she told her that and invites her over, to which Adrian reinforces that she still has to work and can't sneak off whenever she wants, so snaps for adrian because yeah like just because you don't have to work doesn't mean i don't but Brittany apologizes immediately and asks if she'll go dancing with her and reinforces that it can be adrian's treat and she accepts the girl's hug and then here we got you know the mean old kelly standing in the background again with her arms crossed watching all this go down so Brittany leaves and kelly warns adrian about her and tells her that she's just playing with her to which adrian blows her off 
So this is where I was saying, like, they have this scene that I feel like it doesn't need to be here because it, it really is implying like it's a mystery, but it's like we know right off the bat who is sabotaging Kelly's bike because there's a, just a shot of a hand sabotaging Kelly's moped wheel, like basically loosening the screws before it cuts to Brittany picking up Adrian for a night of partying. And so when I was talking to you earlier, Joe, about iconic and distinctive scenes that stand out in my mind, it is this through the entire rave house scene. That dress, the car, her hair, the music, the dancing, everything. It was 2000, so I would have been 16 or 17. I wanted to be these girls so bad. I was like, I'm going to be 20 and I'm going to do that. And I'm going to drive that silver convertible and I'm going to be wearing that little white dress and I'm going to be dancing with the straps around my shoulders with strange men and parting it up and then being like, bye, fuck boys and driving away. Like this was everything and more to me. And so it's fantastic because the girls drive off to this club. On the way, we get this dialogue between Adrian and Brittany who compliments Brittany's it's like a ruby ring on her finger, which Brittany mentions was her mother's who died when she was born. And she got the ring from her father on her 16th birthday. And then that's when the girls pull up to this warehouse party, which again, I have to give a shout out to Go because it really gave me those vibes. I don't know how yeah. you felt. Yeah. And originally this would have been, I can't envision it, but they said originally it was supposed to be a Western bar that the mm. girls go to. And then at the last minute, they changed it to this rave scene. And if you look very closely, you can see the actors who play Greg and Andy are in there and they have a disguise on them. They're acting really ridiculous. Oh. They said they snuck on the set because they weren't supposed oh. to be there because they're, you know, playing these roles that shouldn't be in the scene. But favorite line of the whole movie, when uh, Brittany tells Adrian, we can go in there and get as drunk and as crazy as we want. And the best part about it is no one knows who we are. Oh man, it's so good. <laughs> It's another one from the trailer. I'm just like, again, cutting moments of dialogue from these trailers. So the girl's immediately hit on by a man who buys him a drink. It intercuts them dancing with him, with Kelly crashing her moped. There's a seductive dance. And then the girls leave. They witness Kelly's moped accident. And there's a fake out moment where, that's my friend. You know, Brittany like terribly acts in that scene. Mm. Like, that's my friend in there. And the man tells him to keep going. So the next day at work, Adrian is spraying and finding a framed picture of our in crowd from last year. And there's up close and personal shot of a dowdy Brittany, which is again, another hint that like something's up. I mean, it's a pretty iconic picture. Like, again, iconic, iconic, iconic. But Joe, if you could find an 8x10 color printout of that and you framed it for me and gave it to me as a gift, I think you'd probably be my best friend. Could you imagine coming coming over to my house and someone's like, who are those people? And it's like, oh, this is crazy summer I had a few years back. Just Photoshop you into it too. Oh my God, yes, please. (laughs) But no, Photoshop me in as Sandra. With the shoe. (laughs) I just put my face on her body. Oh, God, yes. Anyone that's seen the film or is going to watch the film, you'll see exactly what we mean because there is this important framed picture that Adrian finds of our in-crowd and a dowdy Brittany. In the middle of the photo is Brittany's sister, Sandra, with blonde hair, rocking sunglasses, and sitting on Matt's lap. And she looks... Pretty identical to Adrian, which is what we were going to include in on earlier with everybody else. So the wasted Bobby, again, the wasted Bobby, or he's, is he hungover? Can't tell. He finds uh, Adrian and explains that Brittany wasn't all that when Sandra was around. 
And then that's kind of all the exposition that you need. And so later, Adrian overhears Brittany talking to Tom, and it's revealed that she blackmailed him into coming on to Adrian. And Brittany starts ripping into him. So Adrian finds Matt and asks if she can talk to him about Sandra because she's starting to feel unsure about all the information she's gotten. And he explains that the last time he saw her was the night of that picture that she was cleaning earlier. And he shows her a postcard, shows Adrian a postcard he received from Sandra asking him to move on with his life. So this is great too. They're just standing on a street corner talking and Brittany catches the two conversing. And then Adrian starts kind of coming on to Matt a little bit or it looks like it with her body language. And Brittany is pissed. So she tails them in her car and she passes them as they're sitting in a restaurant. And it's just this beautiful, amazing shot of her just like glaring at these two as she's like driving by in her fucking convertible and she floors it. And it's got like this, all of a sudden it's like a Fast and the Furious movie where she's like shifting and like hauling ass and like turning a corner and it's great. So Adrian gets a ride home and is immediately confronted by Brittany, which her whole demeanor has changed. I don't know if you remember this, but she's standing at the top of the stairs outside Adrian's room and she's smoking a cigarette inside, right? And just flicks it inside on the floor. Like, what an asshole. Um, And Adrian tells her that she knows what she did about, you know, she knows about Tom. To which Brittany basically is like, well, I was trying to help you out. And she's like, I don't need your help. And the girls kind of get into it because Brittany's like, stay away from what's mine. And Adrian just kind of tries to blow her off and says, Matt is not yours. And I wasn't trying to come on to him. And this is probably my second favorite line in the entire movie. She's like, I brought you in. And if you decide to fuck with me, I can just as easily throw you out. To which Adrian asks if she's supposed to be scared. And Queen, what does Queen Brittany say in reply? I would be as she walks by. Oh, God, Joe, this scene, I'm telling you, this is like my everything. It's just so great. Like all these like bitchy lines. I don't know if it's just because it feels very soap opera to me, Mm. but it's just so it's delivered so well in my mind. So the next day we see Brittany in a tight fitting green dress, pushing a wheelchair bound patient through the halls of a hospital. She runs into Dr. Thompson and explains that she's volunteering there a few days a week. And while they converse, the patient gags and foams at the mouth. Oh, God, and it's so great. And Brittany calmly wipes the person's mouth. And then as soon as Dr. Thompson's out of sight, she throws the rag on the patient's lap and, like, rolls her eyes like, ugh, you're disgusting. And it's so fucking great. I mean, it's terrible. It's terrible. She's a terrible person. But the scene is just, like, hilarious. And so uh, moments later, Brittany sneaks into Dr. Thompson's office and she gets a hold of Adrian's file. And then she notices a pager going off and we cut to Adrian at a payphone holding Dr. Thompson's business card. Later, Adrian confides in Joanne, her buddy at work, and tells her about Brittany and her time at the institution. And this is where it's revealed that when her parents got divorced, Adrian started acting out in school, taking pills, running around, and her parents sent her to the school psychologist where she formed a bond and at some point became so obsessed with him that she believed that they were lovers. So one day after school, when he was blowing her off, she smashed the shit out of his car with a hockey stick, which is an interesting choice. And that's when she was sent to an institution to be convinced that she was never in a relationship with the doctor. And while I appreciate this backstory, this was weird Even in the beginning when I saw this, like it took me out of the story a little bit with that weird flashback footage. She was supposed to be in high school, but she looks exactly the same. And so she just looks like an older 20-year-old playing a 17-year-old hitting the windshield. And it's very it's in like black and white and from the POV inside the car with the glass getting smashed. It's it's really weird. Yeah, I thought it was 
a little strange having this, the context now and thinking back to the beginning of the movie when there's that big panel of six psychiatrists. It's like, it doesn't seem that severe no. to warrant that. To be in this like super grungy institution, I don't know. Adrian felt, in my opinion, more aggressive in the beginning when like that patient was like trying to touch her stuff and she like whipped it out of her hand and like ripped the postcard up and was like, get out of my room. Like just like really intense. Like you think like, oh fuck, like you don't want to mess with this chick. And then as this movie goes on and you see her here at the country club and everything, it's like, nah, She's not shit. You know what I mean? Like she's just this kind of quiet, reserved girl who if you were to like get into a fight with her, like she would back off. But yeah, so we get a little backstory on on Adrian. And uh, then we cut to Crutchbound Kelly returning to the club, wearing a boot. And Adrian apologizes for not believing her. Kelly explains that Brittany didn't always used to be like this and that her sister Sandra made her life a living hell. When Brittany got her ring from her father on her birthday, Sandra flipped out, ripped it off her finger, and the dad in turn made a copy and gave it to Brittany as a consolation. So then Adrian empathizes with Brittany until Kelly reveals that Brittany used to have to wear a copy of the ring. And then the camera pans to the other room as we get a quick shot of Brittany listening to the entire conversation. And again, I just love it. Like, she's just there. She's just always there. Like, always around. She just has a sixth sense. She's like, I know these motherfuckers are going to be talking about me, so I better get in this room. Uh, So back at the institution, we get Dr. Thompson sleeping in his office. He wakes up to Brittany wearing the dress that she gifted Adrian. She seduces him and the two have sex. Later that night, we cut to a forlorn Kelly's uh, staring out into the ocean from her boat. Brittany approaches her and asks if she wants to go for a night ride. The two sail off. It's Kelly, you're an idiot. Exactly. Like, and (laughs) Kelly even has this moment where she kind of like looks out and she's like, now? And I think where we're supposed to believe that she feels safe is Brittany puts the vest on her kind of seductively, Mm. like, puts a life vest on her and snaps it real tight on her chest. And I think that's when she's supposed to be like, oh, okay, well, if you try to fuck with me and throw me overboard, like, I'll at least have a life vest on, so I'll be okay. So the two girls, they go out to the middle of God knows where. Brittany discusses their brief sexual history and comes on to Kelly. It gets hot and heavy, and apparently this was more stuff that was in the original cut that was cut. Like, there was more sexy stuff going on. But yes, as we go on, Brittany unzips Kelly's life vest, which to that, I would be like, if I were Kelly, I'd be like, nope, I'm good with that. Just take everything else off, but I'm leaving this on. But, you know, she puts her life in her hands, literally, because Brittany rolls Kelly overboard as soon as that life vest is off. And I love that Kelly knows immediately right right off the bat. She's like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I didn't say anything. And she's like, (laughs) I thought we were friends before cruelly just saying goodbye and sailing away. And honestly, Joe, this is where I think one of those Mary Lambert horror roots come into play because I always thought the scene was pretty gnarly. Because, like, she's struggling to stay afloat. Her leg's all fucked up. She even at some point is like, my leg, my leg, like, because she can't (laughs) swim. And she's, like, drowning. And I'm like, God, what a fucked up way to go, right? Like, in the middle of, I don't know, let's just say the ocean. I don't know where they are. With a broken leg, you can't swim. It's weighted, I'm sure, a little bit. So, yeah. 
Kelly unfortunately passes because the next day we're cutting to our in crowd gathered on the beach and it's revealed that Kelly had drowned and Adrian gives her condolences to Brittany, but she ignores her and rushes into Matt's arms. And immediately Bobby's suspicious because he's like, Kelly knows, but like of all people, Kelly wouldn't go out there on her own and drown. So Adrian bumps into Wayne outside his room. He drops a folder of artwork. She helps him gather it together and brings it into his room. And inside we kind of get a glimpse of a hoarder dream as he reveals like all this shit that's in his house it's just miscellaneous stuff like mannequins with clothes on it and he says basically to her these people lose more than i ever owned and that's when adrian spots a very familiar muddy high heel Mm. that wayne tells her he found on the golf course so Adrian rushes to the framed picture with Sandra from two years ago. She matches the shoe that she now has in her hand that she took from Wayne to the one that Sandra's wearing in the group photo. She spots Brittany canoodling with Matt on the tennis court, and she decides to Nancy Drew this shit. And so she heads to Brittany's house, is let in by the housekeeper this time. She goes to Sandra's room. She holds up another pair of high heels to match the shoe that Wayne found to the shoe in Sandra's room and sees that it's the exact same size. So while she looks around the other room, we get a quick shot of Brittany returning home. And there's a little tension building. It's like this cat and mouse thing. Like Brittany's getting closer. Adrian's realizing this and having to get the fuck out of there. Adrian finds Sandra's sunglasses from the picture and she pockets them. She also finds a stack of blank postcards and she grabs those. She's interrupted when Brittany climbs the stairs and steps on a creaky step. And in our best cat and mouse, Adrian climbs down a trellis and flees by bike. And as she's riding away, I love this. Brittany naturally steps aside from like the shadows and is standing over like the porch, staring down at Adrian as she's biking away and applies her lip gloss. And in fact, Susan Ward even is just like, oh my God, look at the look on my face. I look like a Chucky doll. It's fantastic. So Adrian returns to the club. She waits tables. Dr. Thompson's there and gives her a quick nod until she's asked to get more caviar. And when she leaves, Dr. Thompson gives a page from Adrian, quote unquote, asking him to meet her to talk. So power in the basement's cut off again. Adrian's locked in a room. Brittany brutally beats Dr. Thompson with a golf club. Not before having this great line of she's like, duck, you don't call, you don't write. It's like very sexy, like don't fuck with me. And he's like, that should have never happened, which duh. So yeah, she beats the shit out of him with a golf club, which I wish, again, Joe, if this was a rated R cut, that we would have got a little bit more gore. Because all we see is like blood splatter on the wall and that's it. But I do love that Brittany's wearing golf gloves like the white golf gloves (laughs) while she's doing it because she is not a dumb bitch. She knows what she's doing. And then the power's restored. Adrian's door gets unlocked and she finds Dr. Thompson's body. But unfortunately for her, as she's standing over the body, her boss appears and rushes off to call the police. And so I just find this so bizarre. Like instead of them just escorting her out of the club, we get this shot of like literally every single person that we've seen in the movie so far, like standing on both sides of Adrian as she's getting police escorted in handcuffs, like out the door slowly. And they're all just giving her the like walk of shame look like, I can't believe it. This woman. So Adrian's carted off to the institution and then she's once again on trial in front of all of our panel of doctors who Adrian denies to them that she had anything to do with the death. But it's revealed that the murder weapon was from the set of golf clubs she used earlier in the films, which Mm -hmm. we do know was Sandra's that Brittany lent to her. And they also found the doctor's semen on her dress in her room. 
Back in her room, Adrienne's administered a pill, which she hides under her tongue. She ends up stashing it into an envelope under her bed, which comes to play a little bit later. And there's a quick shot of Bobby drunkenly lying in Kelly's boat mourning. And that's where he finds Brittany's iconic lip gloss. Iconic again. And he then goes to visit Adrian at the hospital. And this is the scene I was telling you about with the little lip quiver thing. It's fantastic. But he tells her that he thinks that Brittany killed Kelly. And Adrian agrees with him and tells him that she thinks she killed Sandra too. And the two of them devise a plan. Bobby temporarily steals Brittany's ring from her locker at the club while Adrian successfully escapes from the institution. Because she basically just crushes up all the pills, puts it in her doctor's coffee, and the doctor ends up getting knocked out. And she poses as the doctor walking out of the hospital. It's a very elaborate thing, but goes by pretty quick. So then we get back to the club, and this is where our in-crowd are gathered for the big end of the summer party. Bobby tells them it's picture time. And then we get Brittany sitting front and center with Matt, like Sandra did. And while they're snapping photos, Brittany sees Sandra glaring at her from outside. And I do love these scenes. Like, this is pretty great. Obviously, it's not her. But I do love the implication that it's like this ghost is basically staring at her from across (laughs) the room. She's wearing the sunglasses. The sunglasses and the same dress and the same shoes. Everything iconically on. But... Brittany's a smart girl. Like, she knows Adrian looks exactly like her. So, <laughs> whatever. So, Brittany's distracted and walks to the window and finds Sandra's shoe. And that's when she's interrupted by Matt, who she then kind of scurries him away from the window. And when they return to their table, she finds a small box addressed to her. And she thinks it's some cute little, like, gift from Matt. But he's like, nope, that's not for me. And everyone's like, it was here when we sat down. So when she unwraps it, she finds the family ring. So, you know, we get a few shots of Adrian taunting Brittany, you know, like she's in this room getting some water. The phone rings. She answers it. She looks over. She sees Adrian. Well, not Adrian. So sweet Adrian playing Sandra on the phone, basically essentially luring her to the golf course. And so then we get a shot of badass bitch Brittany in her formal wear breaking in to basically this room, stealing a shovel and digging up Sandra's remains. And that's where we see, like, she's not buried very deep. Yeah, this is where they hit the golf ball before. So it's just off the golf course. Yeah, like, literally, here's the golf course. You step over, like, a rock, and then you're in the woods, and there's the body. But I suppose, first-timers, right? Yeah. Which, you know what? If Brittany were smart, she should have just taken that body out in the boat with Kelly, Right? I mean, just do what she did with Kelly. But anyway, so um, she's digging up the remains of Sandra. And she basically just digs up enough just to see the arm and the hand because she pulls the arm out of the the dirt and looks at the hand and she sees the ring on it. And she's like, oh, yeah, she is dead. Thank God. And that's when Adrienne reveals herself and tells Brittany that she needs help before this is great. Honestly, for Brittany brutally attacks Adrian with a shovel. And I mean, brutally, like she hits her with the butt of the shovel, with the sharp end. She's tearing the dress. She nicks her arm. She like hits her in the face. Like, I I mean, it's like pretty intense. Like Adrian's getting fucked up. The girls are rolling around in the dirt. And they did say that um, they didn't do the physicality stuff with the shovel, but they were actually rolling around and choking each other and like doing all that stuff. Because they did have stunt doubles, but they tried to do as much as they possibly could. Susan Ward did say she accidentally ended up hitting herself in the face with the shovel. (laughs) She thought that she had lost teeth because she hit herself so hard in the face. She said she passed out when she woke up. She thought she was like, what happened? She's sure that she knocked her teeth out. She also said later when they're doing the chase scene over by the pool that Susan Ward's heel got caught in the grate 
of oh, one God. of the things and she ended up spraining her ankle because it twisted. So yeah, hardcore. Good for them though. Cause they said the scene where um, she sneaks up behind her before she throws her in the pool. She said she full on had a sprained leg and like was doing her best to try to make it through the night. But I love these. I mean, I love these actresses. I love this scene because it's this from here on out is like great. This is again Mary Lambert shining full bright horror as um, they're fighting. There's a dynasty fight. Adrian takes a few more blows. She manages to escape and runs into Bobby. She tells him about Sandra, but he's knocked unconscious by Brittany. And and this scene too, they also pointed out. Apparently, it's framed. Adrian's running away. She falls to the ground and she turns and kind of like puts her arm up. Because she thinks it's Brittany, but really it's Bobby who's like, hey, what's going on? And apparently it's framed to mirror Christina's world, that image from Christina's world where she's like on the ground reaching out. So it's like, snap, 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 Mary Lambert, you go, girl. (laughs) Um, Which you would have never known until they actually told you, but that's amazing. The little details. Um, So Brittany knocks out Bobby. There's this very elaborate cat and mouse scene in the pool house which they did say was a set. And that's where they're like going in the rafters and she's like stabbing, you know, she's like climbing, I don't know, this weird piping on the top, Adrian's atop and like Brittany's below and she's stabbing this metal pipe above. And that was interesting too, to hear the logistics of that because you would think that there would be a different way of doing this, but they said essentially Lori Hewing was above on these pipes Below her, like right immediately below her was like plexiglass and Susan Ward was below using that sharp pipe. And they said that she should actually like hit it as hard as hit the plexiglass as hard as she can. And Susan Ward was like terrified because she's like, I, what if I miss? Like, what if I hit, actually hit her? But it's like, there's gotta be a better way of doing that. Right. But good on them. Cause what you're seeing her like really stabbing that thing, it's really going on. So inevitably they get out of the little pool house. They are aggressively fighting above now next to the pool and Adrian's hiding and Brittany slinks around revealing that Sandra Sandra was crazy and came after her one night and Brittany ended up pushing her down the stairs and that's how she died and she got Kelly to help her bury the body. And then she says, as soon as I started wearing Sandra's clothes, people started to notice me and she quickly learned how the world worked and that she was trying to show Adrian, but she turned on her, quote unquote. So then after that is the fight out of the pool house up to the main ground by the pool where Brittany overpowers Adrian, pushing her into the pool. She starts drowning her until our core characters rush outside, find them in the pool, and Brittany cries wolf saying that Adrian escaped and is trying to kill her. Bobby, with massive amount of blood dripping down the side of his head, is there, interrupts and tells everyone that Brittany's lying, that she killed Dr. Thompson, Kelly, and Sandra. And Matt jumps in the pool, rescuing Adrian. And Brittany has a meltdown as the guests stare at her. She has this fantastic monologue blaming them for making her this way. And in fact, that was another thing Susan Ward said in the commentary is that it was supposed to end with Adrian just leaving the pool and them staring at her. But at the last minute, Mary Lambert had her rehearse this brief monologue that she ends the film with. And she didn't tell any of the actors. So she said all of their reactions are sincere because they're like kind of terrified. Like, (laughs) what's going on? Because she just keeps going like, you made me this way. You know, like she's like yelling. And then we get in an epilogue 
Adrian and Joanne collecting their last paychecks. They run into Wayne, who gives her a new postcard of Christina's world. The girls drive off into the sunset. And then we cut to the institution where a male orderly delivers food to a worse-for-wear Brittany. You know, her hair is all messy, so obviously she's crazy. Who's now locked up instead of Adrian. And on her tray is her infamous lip gloss, which he slides to her. And she applies it and seductively looks at him before breaking the fourth wall and staring directly into the camera. That's the in crowd. Joe, what did you think? I'm dying to know. I no, you don't have to spare my feelings. If you did not <laughs> like it, I understand. It's not for everyone. I thought it was okay. Like, I think for the most part, I think it's a fine, and I don't mean this as an insult, but kind of like a low rent Wild Things. Or maybe what you said, like, it's a PG-13 Wild Things. And that's fine. But I feel like once it hits a point where Brittany kills the doctor and then... It gets into like, oh, Adrian's getting locked up again. Da, 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 da. I feel that kind of lost me from that point to the end, especially when they're uh, running around the pool house. That felt like it went on for a long time. At that point, I'm like, okay, I'm ready for this to be done. I think I like this movie more as fitting into that style like we were talking about of like Valentine and Soul Survivors. Like this, it's a very particular era. Yeah, and it's it's hard to say because so like the PG-13 of it all, it feels like it's totally unnecessary because this isn't a group of teens. And so that's where mm-hmm. I feel like it can't quite, like maybe like it was the film company that put this out that like couldn't quite figure out what they wanted to do with this. Yeah, I wonder, and I mean, this is not me doing any bit of research, but I wonder if this was kind of the start of that pg 13 ification of horror that kind of happened in the 2000s. Because I, rem- I just remember the one that sticks out the most for me is The Grudge, that that was PG-13 and that seemed weird. Whereas before you had like Scream was R. I know what you did last summer was R, right? Yep. Urban Legend. Yeah. They, I don't know if they were trying to, they thought it would widen their audience, but I feel it just kind of maybe hurt some of the, the style of some or, of the other films. Or like you said, maybe because it was on the tail end of it that they were just opening it up to more people because they were like, if we have a limited release, like meaning like we can't get as many people into this movie, yeah. then we're going to lose even more money. So let's like cut it down to make it PG-13 so anybody can go see it and then we'll get yeah. some more money. But that's why I would kill to talk to Mary Lambert about this because I would love to hear if there was any like studio intrusion or, you know, like those quote unquote notes that people always get where they like, I don't want to say cut the shit out of this because it doesn't feel like it was edited that heavily. It just would be interesting to see like what were the notes given for this because it definitely feels like a movie where these asshole studio executives, maybe these ones weren't, but I could see asshole studio executives being like, we need more sexy women and more shots of like the girls or like of this this sleek cast, you know, doing fun, sexy things. It does feel like this was intended to be wild things, like a sexy, mm-hmm. soapy thriller. And instead they cut it to be more of like a teen thriller. But so I want to just get into a little bit of then... Like I was saying up the top, do you think Brittany is a terrible person? Well, I mean, she does murder two people. Yes, the murder aside. The murder aside, that is... But but also, like, okay, here's... This is in my defense of Brittany Brittany Foster. She does tell her that Sandra went after her. And Kelly does say, Sandra hated Brittany and made her life a living hell. And so in my mind, this is the story that I made up. Again, just... 
thought about this way too much. That this is the classic older sister who's a total fucking nightmare and a bitch to her younger sister, making her life a living hell. Because when you mm-hmm. look at Brittany in the picture, she looks like she literally wants to kill herself. Her hands are at her side. She's got this scowl on her face. She's really dowdy. It's like she has no joy, enthusiasm, and is kind of, in my mind, she's sort of like the anti-hero protagonist that becomes an antagonist because she's you know, being picked on like those classic eighties tropes, you know, where it's like the kid that was picked on was murdered and then they act, you know, he comes back to kill them. That's what it really felt like. Like she's this girl that was tormented and just trying to live her life. And then her sister was a total bitch. And then one night she came after her because they got into an argument about things because let's not forget, Kelly did say on her birthday, she got this ring from her dad. That was her mother's. And he said, Sandra was so mad that she literally ripped it off her finger And kept it for herself. And instead of her dad saying, give that back to your sister, he just made a copy and was like, okay, I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to be a passive rich dad and not give a shit about my kids. So I'm convinced that Brittany was an unloved, intelligent, smart girl who was tormented by her sister, who defended herself. Where she was wrong is she should have told someone about it instead of trying to cover it up. But same time, we're getting a little I Know What You Did Last Summer where they're like panicking and don't know what to do. Yeah. And- well, no, yeah, like she's a tragic character. And I think that's like what you say, Mary Lambert's monologue that was written for her in the end. But yeah, still the villain. She becomes more sympathetic. You understand the corruption of the in crowd. Yes, I just think... I have more sympathy for this character than you think you would because she's not, in my opinion, a one-dimensional bitchy antagonist. She has like a little bit of layers and depth, which is why I appreciate it. And I think that's why I like this movie so much and her specifically in this character or this role, because again, we've seen this movie a million times. We've seen that character a million times. Like, oh yes, the bitchy girls are fun. We like them. I mean, I was a big fan of the bitchy character in Sorority Row, who's kind of like, she's like the comedic. Yeah. But like, let's be honest, she doesn't have much of a backstory. And like when she dies, you're like, oh, well that sucks. But she's just gone now. Whereas like if Brittany Foster were to get murdered, which I remember seeing this being like, oh God, please, no, (laughs) no, do not. Cause that's how it always ends. Right. Like they all die. Like they have to die. Like I thought for sure Brittany was just going to drown or get electrocuted or something. It's very swim fan. You know what I mean? Like remember that one? It's not a good early 2000 reference with my other boyfriend, Jesse Bradford. Um, So yes, I'm just, I'm waiting on about it because I just, I'm obsessed. I have been obsessed for years over this Brittany Foster character. And so this kind of transitions into my my next thought, because both actresses said on the commentary, and again, this is early 2000s, so it'll never happen at this point, but both of them said, let's make a sequel. We are 100% <laughs> up for a sequel. And like, do you think that the Brittany Foster character could come back? I don't feel like we wouldn't see Adrian again because what the fuck would you do with her other than like, let's say Brittany breaks out of the institution and goes after her and then there's this whole shit. But like, could you see the Brittany Foster character in a sequel? I could definitely see her coming back and kind of being like the older mentor to a new in crowd perhaps at their yeah, like, fancy country club like what the new gossip girl's doing they're they're making like a more modern spin and like a fluid version of gossip i'm not saying that the old cast is coming back but like if they were it's sort of like the old school handing it off to the new school. Yeah. I got really excited when I heard them say that. I was just like, oh, God, son of a bitch. Like, could you even imagine a world with an in-crowd sequel? Like, I 
I would probably be the happiest person alive. One last thing that I wanted to point out that I had been talking, I think maybe in previous episodes or mentioned before is when I first saw this, so I am no stranger to erotic thrillers. We've made that very known on the podcast. I'm a big fan. The Crush 1993 with Alicia Silverstone and Carrie Ells is top tier, one of my favorites. And in fact, I am saying on the record that I've always thought the in crowd was a kindred spirit to this film because the whole storyline of Adrian going to a mental institution because she fell in love with her doctor and beat the shit out of like his windshield with a hockey stick rang so true to the ending of The Crush where Darian, aka Adrian, Alicia Silverstone's character from The Crush developed a major crush on Carrie Ells and attacked him and then ended up Similarly, like in an institution where I think she makes eyes at like the orderly and that's the end of the film. So I'm 100% convinced this is like a spirit sequel. It's Mary Lambert's secret sequel to The Crush. It is. I mean, like, I, I just like to believe like this is what happened to the Alicia Silverstone character. Like she went from that film, she spent time in the institution, she grew up and now she's redeeming herself going to this country club where it's the in crowd. And in fact, is now a character you actually root for because she's reformed where we have the new school, which is the Brittany Foster character. But yes, that, I've been meaning to say that uh, on record out there. I want to be the first one to say that The In Crowd is an unofficial official sequel to the movie The Crush. It is a great pairing. Talk about a double feature. Like these would be two films fantastically done back to back. So Joe, thank you so much for watching this and sticking through this long summary and my over description of this movie. Because like I said, this is a movie... I've been wanting to cover for a long time. I really, really love it for all the reasons I've mentioned. And first, one more question. Sure. Uh, Cause you mentioned that when you first saw the in crowd, like that's what you wanted your life to be. Did that ever make you sad that you never reached the heights of Brittany? Let me tell you when I came out, cause I came out late in life. It was about, and I'm, I'm by late, I mean, you know, 21, but uh, for 2021. But when I came out and went out to the bars and experienced that whole single gay life experience for me, you couldn't tell me I wasn't Brittany Foster. <laughs> like I, I would get so drunk and so out on that dance floor. Like I 100% recreated that scene. While I didn't maybe dance with like two other people at the same time, when I would be so drunk out there on the dance floor, you couldn't tell me I wasn't Brittany Foster standing out in the middle of the dance floor. So anyway, this week we covered my favorite, one of my favorite films, but we are thinking of continuing to ring in the new year with a very special staff pick by Joe. So Joe, what film did you pick for us to discuss? Uh, well, I have found it very difficult lately to figure out a title that I really want to talk about. I don't know if this is more being put off by the films I enjoy that aren't streaming anywhere or unavailable, or if it's just the new year has got me down. But I feel that the solution to this is a little bit of Charles Schultz. So I am going to choose a little bit of a different selection here because it was actually a TV special. It is the rare 1988 peanut special. It's the girl in the red truck, Charlie Brown. I'm excited to get into this because you are a huge Peanuts fan. I've just never actually sat down and watched any of them. The, well, this is going to be a weird place to start. 
Uh, it is the one special that actually blends animation and live action. And it has only been released physically once, uh, VHS in 1996. And then the reception of this was so poor that it hasn't been released since. You can't stream it anywhere. But thankfully, due to the wonders of YouTube, you can find it easily online. And I feel with that conversation too, I have a lot to say about Peanuts and this actually stars Spike, Snoopy's brother. There's a lot to say about him. Uh, I'm going to be delving deep and revisiting some of the other specials as well. Uh, so while this special actually is shorter than our usual choices, it's 50 minutes, uh, so the summary will likely be shorter. But I feel that there are parts of this that'll be up your alley, and we'll have plenty of other things to talk about. So say the title one more time so everybody's got it, because it's a lengthy one. It is. It's the girl in the red truck, Charlie Brown. Got it. If you're tuning in just now, just to hear the, the film for next week, it's <laughs> the girl in the red truck, Charlie Brown. Um, and then if you like what you heard in this week's episode, please remember to leave a review on Apple, Spotify, or Google. And you can also reach us at videodropboxpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, remember to be kind and please rewind.